There is a story that is told about a young couple who they got married, shared their vows. They were going to leave the next morning on their honeymoon. They were going to head down to those islands in the Caribbean. And so they had a very early flight. They would have to get up very early. They got a room at the airport. That's where they had their first night. They got a honeymoon suite right next to the airport so that they would be able to get up and get to the airport right away, not miss their flight. And so as it usually happens, they were going to leave their reception, but it got later. And so by the time they got out of the reception, it was really late when they got to the hotel. And so they got there, and they were going to say, okay, we have just a few hours of sleep, and so get the room. And they were all excited. They opened the door to the honeymoon suite, and they were shocked. Small room. They looked inside. There wasn't even a bed. There was a sofa sleeper. They looked in. The bathroom was small. The biggest thing in the room were the double doors that they assumed led into a closet. And the man was really mad. He was going to go down, going to complain, demand they get something different. And the wife says, you know, it's not worth it. Let, you know, let's go to sleep. We have to get up really early and really tired. So they slept in the sofa sleeper, got up early. They got to get to the plane. And they go down and he's complaining at the desk. He is giving the clerk, that very early morning clerk, he is giving him an earful. This was the worst, you know, possible. It was worse than any hotel, number one. And it was the wedding suite, the honeymoon suite. How bad can it be? And the man just looked at him. And he's complaining. He says, the sofa, sleeper, the little bathroom, the biggest thing in the room were the closet doors. The clerk looked at him and said, didn't you open those doors? And he said, no. He said, that led into the suite. That led into the big room. Here they were. They paid for it. And they just missed out on this opportunity to enjoy everything that was prepared for them. That's exactly what the book of Colossians is doing. He's writing it to believers who believers who are not moving forward. They're not opening the doors to real maturity, to real blessings. In fact, the doors are kind of being held shut to them by some of the false teachers that are there. And Paul is writing to them and saying, hey, listen, don't just settle for the ante room. Don't settle for the sofa sleeper. Open the doors and enjoy all the benefits. That's what chapter 3 is about. What's on the inside, what you can do, especially verses 15 through 17. Let me set the stage and then we'll read the passage. In this text, Paul is writing to them. And as you remember, the four chapters are all about this one thought. The one thought that you see in chapter 1, verse 18, the last few verses, or the last few phrases, the words, it is to make Christ preeminent. See that he is preeminent in all things. That's what this whole book is about, magnifying Christ, lifting up Christ. And he gives two reasons. In chapter 1 and 2, he says, because he's your creator, we looked at that text, where he's talking about Jesus Christ, all things exist by him. And then he has another section that he says is because he's your completer. He's given you salvation. Through him, he has given you forgiveness of sin. Through him, you're able to know you're on your way to heaven. Through him, you have a reservation seat in heaven that's going to be part of that kingdom for forever and ever and ever. And those are lengthy sections that we already looked at. Chapter 3 and 4 are, okay, because he has done so much for you, what should you do? And chapter 3 and 4 are what you should do how you should live on this side of glory, what you're supposed to be doing. Do you remember what we talked about already? The beginning of chapter 3 is put off the vices. 
Put off the sensuality. Put off the social sins of anger and quick temper. Put off that idea of bitterness. And then he goes on in the middle part of chapter 3 and he talks about put on the virtues. Forbearing. Forgiving one another. And I think what happens then after he's so specific that in verses 15, 16, 17... He is then saying, instead of me continuing and giving you instance after instance and item by item, what you need to do is you need to adopt these four important values for everything in your life. Instead of me spelling it out any further, let me give you four commands. And these four commands are basically important values that you can use in any situation. Okay, it's a staircase. What he's doing in this book so far, he's saying you're born again. You've asked Christ to be your Savior. You've repented of your sin. You said, Jesus, forgive me of all my sin. Give me eternal life. He's heard that prayer. You, he's responded. You are born again. And now you're supposed to grow. And the first thing you do when you grow is you put off the vices. Then what you need to do is you put on those virtues. Then what you need to do is open the room Take advantage by adopting these values. So no matter where you're at, no matter what situation, no matter who you're dealing with, you are operating on this high, high standard of these four values. What are they? What are you supposed to adopt and follow every day, all the time? Number one, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You see that in verse 15 where he starts off and he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body. And so when he's going to talk about that, he's, we've got to understand it. And to understand it, we've got to answer this one question. What peace of God is he talking about? If you've read your Bible at all, at any length, you will remember that there's three different peace of God's mentioned in the scriptures. Quite a few times, peace of God shows up. It's one of these three possibilities of what he's referring to. It could be the peace, the judicial peace that you have with God when you're born again. Let me remind you, Romans had put it this way. It says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in the book, he explained it this way. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, you that were sometime alienated and enemies. Do you remember when we were in this section? We put a picture up that had a wall, this huge wall. You were on one side, God was on the other. The idea is you are separated by God because you are at enmity with God. You're enemies, you're alienated by your sinful choices. That you and God have no relationship. But what Jesus Christ did, that through his blood, he knocked down this wall and he reconciled you. Removed all the conflict. Removed all the, that which kept you apart from God. That's being born again. That's what you do. Your part is repent of your sin. He then restores you to a spot where you have a relationship with God. Being born again, he becomes your father. You become his child. Is that what he's talking about in this verse? Is he commanding them in verse 15 that what you need to do is right now let the peace of God rule in your heart. Get saved. I don't think so. Because he's already mentioned earlier in the book that they are saints. That they are already believers. So it's not this peace, though they had that happen to him at one time in the past. Is it this peace? 
isn't the peace that many of you, when you first read it, think that this is what it's about. The peace, the confidence, the steadfastness, the, the ability that some of you have displayed during COVID, that despite all of the chaos, you're still maintaining a semblance of stability. You're maintaining a semblance of sanity. That peace that he talks about that Jesus said in this world you're going to have tribulations, you're going to have difficulties, you're going to have trials, you're going to have troubles. But he says, I leave you my peace. That's why I'm saying these things. The last night before he died, these were, this is a quote, that I have spoken unto you these things that in me you will have peace. In other words, no matter what happens to you, even if we face persecution, we can have peace like the apostles had, like the saints who have gone on before us, is that what he's talking about? The same thing that he writes about in Philippians. He says, don't be anxious for anything. Don't be distraught. Don't be upset. But rather, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds. That's a possibility that that's what he's saying here. I don't think it's this peace, though. I think there's a third peace that's talked about in Scripture, and that's this passage. Because when he says that another peace is, we can have peace with all men. That idea of harmony with people. That idea of being able to forgive people. That idea of that if they smack one side of the cheek, you turn the other one to them. That idea that Paul writes that live at peace with all men as much as is within you as possible. That peace that is mentioned back in verse 11. Look in this text. In verse 11, he says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all, he brings you together, and he's in all of you. That peace that we're talking about here is family peace, brother and sister peace, the idea that we get along. Well, that makes perfect sense because not only does he mention we don't have differences in Christ, even though we might in social and culture, but even the next words where he says in verse 13, where he talks about, well, in verse 12, he talks about how we should treat one another that we already preached on, mercy, kindness, humbleness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, forgiving. How is it possible that we can do that through Christ? How is it possible that we can get along when we have such different, through Christ? That peace that we have with one another. And I think what trumps this concept is the phrase that goes along with it in verse 15. Where he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body. And he's talking about our relationship one with another. And so in this text he's giving us a command. Adopt this value. This value that says what I am going to do is I'm going to strive to be at peace with my brothers and sisters and even those who are outside of the body of Christ would attack or accuse. To have that relationship that Christ had with his disciples, that even though there was disappointments, he still loved them to the very end. He cared for them. He ministered to them. And in this text, he says, basically, let the peace of God rule in your heart. This idea that I want harmony, I want to have good fellowship with others, let it be the umpire. The word rule has the idea that somebody is calling the shots, that the umpire is saying, you know, you're safe, you're out. You're going to let the peace of God, that standard, it's going to dictate what you do in certain circumstances. It's going to say, here's how you act. 
Here's the rules you follow. When you get upset with family members, instead of yelling and screaming and getting bitter, you're going to let the peace of God umpire how you respond to that person that's irritated you. You're going to let the peace of God umpire how you're going to treat your kid when they have really pushed you over the edge. You're going to let the peace of God dictate what you do in your conversation that is becoming tense between you and your significant other. You're going to let the peace of God dictate how you respond to your parents when they're driving in nuts. That's what he says, adopt that standard. That you let and you determine, I will let God's standard of how I relate to other people call the shots on what I do when I'm confronted. Now that idea, what we're talking about, is for all of us. It's interesting the way he does the pronouns here. Or how he does the, the verbiage and puts, the, puts who he's referring to. The verb let is a singular verb. You. Each of you, let the peace of God rule in all of your hearts. He shifts from a singular to a plural for a reason. He's trying to draw your attention. This applies to every single one of you and me. That this is to be the standard, that we let this become the habitual way we respond. That we let this standard of God you control, that I no longer am unforgiving, I am blasting people, I put off those vices of anger and wrath and bitterness, and I'm letting your peace rule and dictate how I respond all the time. This is the way, this becomes my norm. This is the way I live at home, at work, at school. That I'm not volatile, that I'm not explosive, that I'm not a bitter person, but I'm letting the peace of God rule. In fact, what he does in the rest of the passage, I, I think this is phenomenal the way it's laid out. He's just talked about some specifics you put off and put on, and now he's giving you the umbrella standard of let the peace, and then he takes it in the next verses to very specific situations. Look, at, look down at verse 18. Wives. Husbands, husbands to your wives, verse 19. Children to their parents, to parents to their kids, verse 21. Servants at work. And he carries it all the way through to your family life and to your, your work-a-day life. Now, okay, here's what you do. This is how we get along. Even tells husbands, don't be bitter towards your wives. You've adopted this value system that the peace that God has given me in relationship to others it will not be ruined by the way I respond. There's a this story that comes out of Salvation Army history back in the early 1900s. A gal who was called Warrior Brown, this gal was called this name because she was a warrior. She looked like an Amazon, okay? And she was having a real rough background. She would drink. She would you know, get into the bar brawls. Her background was a terrible background. She would be able to you know, take most men and wipe them out with one fist. She was just this beast. And she had a violent temper. She hears the gospel in one of the street services Salvation Army is, is giving. And she is convicted. She realizes that she definitely is a sinner. That she definitely doesn't, earn, doesn't merit getting into heaven. That she needs forgiveness. So she responds, gets saved. 
And she's growing in Christ. And she's learning to put on and put off and doing the, doing the Christian virtues and the vices getting rid of them. She's still struggling, but she's getting a lot of victory. And she's doing well. They have Warrior Brown one day. They ask her when they're doing street meetings. They said, would you share your testimony? We're going to go back into your old neighborhood. Your old cronies, the people you used to drink with, the people you used to brawl with. And so she says, sure, I would love to. And so she goes with them. And at the time when the guy is doing street preaching, he asks her to come up. And she shares her testimony. And she is sharing how Christ has changed her. And all of a sudden, whack! She feels the sting of her fa- on her face. And she looks down, somebody threw a potato and hit her right in the side of the head. She looks over and she recognized the guy. Her first reaction is, I'm going to clean the street with you. And she's ready to step down and she stops. She reaches down, grabs the potato, looks at him, puts it in her pocket, and continues to give her testimony. Let's fast forward now several months later. Several months later, in the fall of this, that, every year, at that time, what the Salvation Army would do is they would have a harvest festival. And one of the things that they would do is they would say, all of you who are part of our, of our group, then let's bring something to the Lord that we're going to give to the Lord that can be used for ministry. Well, people would bring monies. They would bring gifts that they would go to the ministry. But then Warrior Brown showed up that day, and she had a sack of potatoes. And she presented, they're all kind of looking at her like, okay, why did she bring this sack of potatoes? And she explained. She said, I took that potato, I cut it up, took the eyes, and I planted them. And this is the crop I got out. And what I'm doing is I'm giving to the Lord any type of frustration, tax, whatever, it's going to be given to the Lord, and I'm going to learn to turn the other cheek. Have you adopted in your life the principle of living at peace with others no matter what? Or are you still, when you go home from church services, you justify yourself to lose your cool with your kids, to argue with your siblings, to scream and to yell in anger? Well, he says, hey, listen, here's a standard you adopt. The peace of God, that harmony, that becomes a major standard that you do not want to violate. Then he gives a second one. It's at the end of the verse. The way our Bibles are laid out is kind of unfortunate. They're parallel thoughts. They're not one subordinate. He says, let the peace of God, that's your first command. And then the second command, and be thankful. And be thankful. Now again, I'll remind you that this isn't something that's abnormal in this book. Paul has prayed for them to be thankful. We know that the word of God says, this is the will of God that you be thankful. We know that the spirit of God has already led Paul to write these words. And now it's not just something he prayed for. Now it's a command, be thankful. That's because God's will for us. We know what being thankful is all about. and It's an attitude of gratitude, an expression of exultation. It's the idea that we lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks. We understand who we are and who we are in comparison to Christ, in comparison to others, and we say, okay, I'm going to be a grateful person, a humble person who is grateful, who doesn't think everybody owes me. But I am thankful for what God has given us, what God has loaned us. And he says, this is an attitude you need to put on. And again, I remind you, the verbiage here, the command is very clear, you all. All of you do this. And it is, again, that idea, keep on letting this be a part of your life. But what I find most challenging is the way that it's phrased is let yourself to become, let somebody else change you 
or you do this to yourself, you become thankful. Why does he say it that way? Because by nature, we are unthankful people. By nature, this is a battle for us. And so he's commanding us. He's saying, you need to work on being a thankful person. One who expresses thanksgiving instead of all the complaints. One who is looking for the blessings instead of all the burdens that come. And he says, this is something I want you to work on. So you have to ask yourself, and I have to say, did the spirit of praise and thanksgiving, was that my attitude this past week? Is that something that, that I've grown into? Or do I need to open up the doors and enter into this realm so I experience maturity and all the blessings that God has for me? Or am I still staying in the ante room and keeping the door shut because I refuse to become thankful? So I, I started thinking through, for me, what does this apply? What does this look like? Am I a positive or a negative person when it comes to being at work? When it comes to my fellow workers? When it comes to the area of school? You guys have a tough school year. I would not want to be where the teens are. What a hard situation to be in school when it's up and down, open, closed. I found school bad enough without all these difficulties. Are you one who complain, complain, complain? Or, hey, you know, thank you, Lord, I have an opportunity to learn. As disruptive as it is, thank you for the opportunity. Are you an individual that, you know, the house is wonderful, but, oh, man, you know that in your heart, but all you talk about is all the things that are wrong with it. All you talk about is all the things that are wrong with the vehicle. Where you're fostering a negative, critical spirit, complaining spirit. What about the family you live with? I know you're thinking right now, well, you live with them. Okay. What do you say? How do you respond? Are you, yeah, I'm thankful when they're all sleeping. Okay. But seriously, genuinely, before God Almighty, are you giving thanks for the blessings that you have? It's really hard right now that we, we all look and we say, our country is really scaring us where it's going, what it's headed for. Okay, and I don't mean to diminish the concerns that we should have, but I'm still glad I live in this country. I'm still glad I have freedoms. I know some of you say we've lost them all. We're still here to be able to worship. We still have opportunity to share the gospel without threat. Some of our missionaries don't have that. Remember what we heard last week from the gentleman that said those people in some of those regions under their COVID restrictions, if they step out the door, they get beaten. We have a lot to be grateful for. Do we have a lot to be concerned about and pray over? Yes. But I'm glad I live in this day and age. I'm glad that we have running water. I'm glad you can shower. You're glad I can too. Okay. I'm glad that we have a lot of the benefits that we have that in other ages they didn't have. Well, when we think about being thankful, it's a chore to get up on a dreary morning like this and to go to church. It's dark out. It's rainy out. And I could sleep. And I could use that sleep. And I hope Burgraff is short. I know that'll never happen. It's easy 
to look at the negatives instead of the blessed positives of getting to hear God's word. You are really blessed. Not because I'm preaching. That sounded horrible. Okay. We are really blessed that we can be under preaching. We are blessed that we have the opportunity to learn. Some people don't have churches. They don't have that opportunity. The, the clothing, the food God gives us. Yeah, some of it, you know, it's, you know when it's made up, it's like, hmm. You know, I put it out and the dogs and the stray cats, they don't eat it. Yeah, that's not the norm. God has blessed us. Work on a thankful spirit. Now, why does he make that one of the great values of our life? On the, plane, on the same plane as having peace, being thankful, and loving God's word. Why does he elevate thankfulness at that level? Because it's so important in our hearts. It's one of the major values that we need to adopt. Let's talk about the third one. I've already alluded to it. The third command in the passage is this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Woo! What a loaded passage. What an absolute... The, the word of Christ, obviously they don't have a complete Bible. So the word of Christ is referring to everything that we've been hearing of Christ. They don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John circulated, but whatever we are hearing, whatever words of Christ, you and I, we have it written down. We have more of the completion of it than they did in the mid-60s at that time. And so he's saying the word of God, the word that of teachings, of Jesus, and all that's been inspired. Now let me ask you this question. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word dwell means to let come into your house with open arms. Okay, here, give me some feedback. <clears throat> Somebody's coming to stay with you for a few days, okay? And you say, make yourself at home. What does that mean? Get your own food? Get your own food? In my home, that's, that's where we're at. In my home, it's like, you want coffee? You make it. We don't drink it. You don't want what we could make. You're on your own, baby. Okay. What else do you say? You, let yourself be comfortable. Do you ever do this? Hey, welcome. Come into our house. You feel at home. You can only sit in that chair. <laughs> do you ever do that? No, that's not. Oh, yeah, okay. We all know that. But, yeah, fine. When I say and people come in our house, make yourself at home, I don't mean go and sleep in my bed. We know that one. Okay. There's certain things that are... But we're basically saying, you have free reign. Make yourself out. Get your own food. You see something in the cupboard? Take it. Especially if it's coconut. Take it all. Okay. <laughs> that idea is in this text, letting the word of God be welcomed into your life. Gladly saying, word of God, minister to me. Word of God, speak to me. Word of God, I'm going to let you have free reign of my entire life. Oh, wait, no. Word of God, you can only sit here. Word of God, you want to convict me about something? Nope, you can't do that. that that's a closet you can't get into. You can only talk to me about good, positive things. Ah, let the word of God dwell richly. By the way, that idea of richly is you consider it a high treasure, a treasure of great value that it's there. That you can let it into your life. That you are excited that the word of God is going to come into your heart, come into your life and minister to you as a prized possession. Now he's writing to believers. 
And he's telling believers, this is what all of you need to do. This is what you who are believers, you need to do this habitually. You need to take in, let this be your common practice. Can you sit here this morning and say, I do that. I take in the word of God every day. It has, it's allowed to really have free reign of my house, my heart. That's what he's asking us to do. No, I take that back. That's what he's commanding us to do. Adopt this value that the word of God is a prized possession that we love to entertain and spend time with. You know, this is true. This is true. I'm going to go back into our history a little bit. Our country placed great value in the past on the Bible. They did. You look at this. This is a Continental Congress. It wasn't set up. The use of the Bible is universal. It's importance. The committee recommends that the Congress at the time order 20,000 Bibles to be imported so that American citizens, they would not be, because they were a member of all these different you know, boycotts and things, they wanted to make sure there was Bibles aplenty for American homes. We know just a few years after that, after Congress was, was all formulated, we know that they passed this resolution in Congress. Be resolved, the United States Congress assembled, and I'm going to go to the highlighted part, that they recommend this edition of the Bible that Mr. Atkins was doing to the inhabitants of the United States and hereby authorize him to publish this recommendation in a manner he shall think proper. So they put their stamp of approval on an American publishing Bibles in American shores instead of importing them. We know that in the mid-1800s, Congress of the United States recommends and approves the Holy Bible for use in our schools. Isn't that a switch? Okay, a lot of us, some of you are, I'm really, you're going to go, oh man, you are old. I am. Okay. But I remember this. I remember in 82 that Congress said the president is authorized and requested to designate 1983 as the year of the Bible. Ronald Reagan was president at the time. Have we got, come a long way since then? Okay, yeah, not forward, right. We've, we've just diminished. And we as a country, we look and we say, as believers, we go, that's horrible where our country was and where we are at. That's a horrible backward decline. Are you any better personally? Before you attack America, what about your life? Is you used to love the Word of God after camp. You used to love the Word of God when you got born again. But now you haven't passed a law, but you're not in the Word. You get it on Sundays, but outside of that, you know, the app stays shut or the Bible's collecting dust. So before we criticize the country, remember we need to clean up our own lives first. And in this text, he's talking to believers. He's talking to born-again people. And he's saying, you guys, you've got to adopt a value where the word of God is allowed as a highly prized possession to come into your heart every single day. Why does he bother telling us that? Because it's a battle for us. Because for a lot of us, we struggle with doing that. How does it look to bring the Word of God into our hearts on a regular basis? Well, obviously, it means we need to read it. But for some of us, not you, when I say some of us, I assume I'm the norm. 
and I'm probably the oddball, but I struggle with reading every day. I, I want to do this. I really do. I want to read through the Bible in a year. And I've done this more than a few years. I got saved in 73, so I've been saved a long time. And there's several times it was like, okay, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And I adopted in January the idea, I'm going to read. I start with Genesis. Genesis is fun. No problem reading two, three, four chapters a day. Genesis is great. Numbers, pretty good. But I tell you what, that third book, that just gets like, Walking into, walking into a brick wall. Leviticus. Oh man, come February, it's like, are you kidding me? Take the blood of the goat, put it on his nose, put it on his ears, you know, wash his feet. And if you're not familiar with Leviticus, it's a wonderful book, but it's hard. And then you get the genealogies. I can't even pronounce them. And it's, you know, so usually by March, I'm starting to flit around in Scripture. Or I have a problem. This is me, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, I, I'm sure I would have been diagnosed on all kinds of Ritalin when I was, I should be on now. But just keeping, just keeping at, attentive, I need variety. I may be the only one in this room, but I need variety to maintain that enthusiasm. I read of a way of doing it that I found really, really delightful. For I did it here a couple of years back. And I followed this little bit of formula. It was kind of cool for me. Okay, it may not work for others. But it was like, okay, I'm going to be reading the Word of God, but I'm not going to be in one book and feel like I'm going to be in only in that book for an extended period of time. So there was variety. Every, other, every day was variety. What I did is on Mondays, and somebody else had this, so I, it's not mine. On Mondays, I would read in the Pentateuch. Two or three chapters. Every week, Monday was Pentateuch. You know what Pentateuch is? First five books. First five books. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tuesdays was then those historical section. The next few books. Read my several chapters. But I'm getting some variety. Then Wednesdays was the wisdom books. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And so read some chapters out of that every Wednesday. Then on Thursdays was some prophetic books. And then on Fridays was the Gospels. Now, you're going to get through the Gospels quicker during the year than you will any other. That's okay. Just go back and read them again. Read them again. And then the Epistles were on Saturdays. On Sundays, Sundays wasn't other reading. It was reading the messages and studying the messages and meditating on that. For me, it worked for that year that I did it. I found it very refreshing that it provided the variety that me and my Ritalin brain needed to just keep focused. You pick what you you can do. You adopt some way, but get into the Word of God and get the Word of God into you daily. Get it into your heart and your mind. How do you do that? You read it. How do you do that? You memorize it. How do you do it? Okay, get to church when we're preaching the Word of God. Get exposed to it. And during the services, don't just sit here and play with your phones. I know, just everybody who's been following me with their phone just went like this. Okay. That's fine. I mean, we understand a lot of you are using your Bible apps. That's great. That's good. But don't be preoccupied with showing you know, somebody else, hey, look what I just got for a text. Make this God's time. Focus in on the Word of God. Do a Bible study with somebody else. 
Get into a point where, you're, where you say, okay, during the week, I'll, I'll listen to a Bible message or two. Over the last two years, I've been starting myself to just do this more frequently, is pick some, some person that I'm very confident with where they're at, and at least once a week, if not more than a week, when I'm doing my walking on a daily basis, I listen to messages. It's either listen to messages or listen to talk radio. <laughs> messages has been far better for my heart. And just such, such a help. Do, do this. If you say, well, I, I want to get something in take a Bible Institute class for a few weeks. Do something that you're open to what you hear, and if you really want to learn the Word of God, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, you really want to learn the Word of God, volunteer to teach. You learn the Word of God best when you are going to give it to somebody else. Learn it. Okay, the commands. Work and say, I'm going to be a peaceable person. Focus on harmony with others. I'm going to be a person who has adopted this value. I will try to be a thankful, grateful, positive person. I am going to be an individual who loves the Word of God and brings in the Word of God into their life and into their heart. And we, before we move to the fourth, I must say this. He says, in all wisdom, let the Word of Christ dwell with you richly in all wisdom. And, and there's going to be a debate. Does the in all wisdom go with the richly or does it go with, you know, teaching one another? And that's for other scholars to figure. But this is true. He is telling these people, the word of God is where you find wisdom, not in the Gnostic teachers. Not in those false teachers. It's in the word. It's in the word. And he's telling them that any of you can have such wisdom. It's not limited. Remember the false teachers are saying, only a select few of you can be wise. And he's saying, no, 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 any of you can have the wisdom. The Word of God, you take it in, it'll change you. It'll transform you. It'll mature you. There's a story that comes out of World War II, that when the U.S. troops were going through some of the jungles in like Burma or somewhere in that region of the world, I forget exactly where, as they were marching through, they would come across sometimes villages that they had freed from the occupation of the Japanese. And they're coming through this one remote region where there's some villagers there that are greeting them. And these villagers, I mean, just, just the generation before, these villagers were really remote. They were cannibals. They were just really, really primitive people. But missionaries had come. And one of those men who had responded to the missionary, one of those old gentlemen now who was uh, there in that jungle village living, he came out to greet the American soldiers. And the way he was greeting him was waving his toothless smile. He was all excited and holding up the Bible that he got from a missionary. One of our troops walked past, smiled at the old man and who could speak some English and said to him, he says, oh, that old book. We in America, we've outgrown that book. The old man stopped, looked at him. He said, good thing for you we haven't or you would become my lunch. Okay. <laughs> Anybody can be changed by the word of God. Anybody. That's including you. And so what he says in this passage, oh, 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 mark this in your Bible. I forgot I had it up here. This is a quote from Charles Spurgeon. When you see a Bible that is falling apart, it normally belongs to a man who isn't. Isn't that clever? They're just the stability that the Word of God can give us. So what we're talking about here is saying, okay, you're supposed to be teaching one another, admonishing, we understand that. We're supposed to be interacting, giving out the Word of God, positive and negative. In psalms, in hymns, and spiritual songs. There's a whole other message right here whole other thought here 
about, okay, what is this? We're supposed to be letting the word of God come into me, and then I'm supposed to be sharing it with others. And one of the ways I can share it with others is psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There are several really, really quick observations you want to just mark down. Observation about music is this. Music is a powerful tool for teaching. You know it's true. How did you teach your kids the ABCs? You probably sang them. Probably taught a lot of the tune. How is it that in America, everybody's convinced that there was three wise men? Well, you have gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but what cinches it for most people? We three kings of Orient. Okay, and then it's just adapted. Music teaches. Music is a powerful tool for teaching. It's a powerful tool for Christians to use. Tremendous tool. But it must be true to the teachings of Christ. You know, that's the problem with a lot of music. A lot of music is really neat. It can, it can you know, tune to your heart and it can be exciting. But if it doesn't teach truth, if that Christian music is teaching error, it's as dangerous as a preacher being a heretic. Oh no, but it makes me feel good. If it is wrong doctrine... You should not tolerate that song. It's that important because it's teaching you. you I'm, I'm telling you, you wouldn't tolerate me teaching error. Why would you tolerate a Christian artist? What gives them the right to teach error? There's something else. Christian music should center on God and his work. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Christian music should not be about the artist being elevated. The Christian music in this passage is teaching and admonishing one another. You know how the spiritual gifts work? God gives Christian spiritual gifts to benefit the body. Not to say, woo, look at me. Christian music's the same thing. According to this text, it's to benefit the body, not to everybody go, ooh, wow. Aren't they good? Something else that strikes me in this text. It is the normal response of believers who are filled with the Word of God. While singing, it's assumed that all of a sudden, that filling of a grateful spirit, that filling of, of being thankful for the grace of God, look at the text, and that idea of the Word of God permeating and helping you, that the normal response is, I just want to express it somehow. And one of the easiest expressions is for us to sing. To put it into, into music and to express it that way. Which is unto the Lord, giving him praise. But I like this part, from the heart. I am so glad he didn't say, while singing with a beautiful voice. Because that would negate me. And a lot of us here. Because my singing sometimes is croaking. And in this passage it doesn't say, okay, as long as it's not croaking. It's just out of the heart. Any one of us and all of us can do this. We may, we may not hold the note, but from the heart, we're expressing the praise. And he's advocating that and saying, here's what I appreciate. Do it. Do it. Let the word of God be in you and let it come flowing back out in worship to me. So here we got one, we adopt peace. Two, we adopt thankfulness. Three, we adopt the idea of living by God's word. Number four. Number four. This is your high, the, the values. They seem to be going up the staircase. This is do all in the name of the Lord. Your fourth command. Do all in the name of the Lord. And we understand what he's talking about. That idea, if you lived back then, you would understand. Do all in the name of the Lord. Uh, you just, it doesn't mean, oh, Jesus, Jesus, 
Jesus just it's the idea that you adopt and identify with that person. Everything you're doing, you're trying to represent that person. Whatever you're doing, you're trying to honor that person. That's what he means. Do all, everything to promote his name, to elevate him, to let others see how great he is, how good he is, how wonderful. You, you see certain brand names. And they have a reputation that they are high quality. Well, the name of Jesus is high quality. You're to be living that out before other people. You're not to be dragging down the name of Jesus. You're not to be the one at work that all of a sudden says, hey, listen, at work, I'm not doing my part. I'm just going to be lazy at work. I'm not going to work real hard. And yet I'm going to give out tracts to everybody. And your coworkers go, what a bum. What a bum. And he calls himself a Christian. You don't want to be the type of person that is at school. You're involved with all the nasty jokes and the nasty stuff that goes on. And then you say, hey, you should come to church with me where you can hear the gospel. And they go, what's the matter with you? You're a Christian? I am embarrassed at times. When all of a sudden I'm confronted that somebody might say, hey, so-and-so goes to your church. Uh, do you know what they're like? No, I don't know what they're like. I'm not following them around. Yeah. And don't embarrass Christ. Don't bring shame to your master. Don't do things contrary that, that would take his name through the mud. But rather, with thanksgiving, with your saying, I owe him a whole lot. I'm going to live in a way that honors Jesus. This is for all of us. This, again, is word and deed. Not just, okay, you're doing it in here and then you're living a different thing during the week. This is a consistent lifestyle of making Christ preeminent. That's the theme of the book. Now, in the middle of this section, he says, and whatever you do, here's what you got to do. Make sure you're honoring Christ. And wives, here's how you do it. And husbands, here's how you do it. And kids, here's how you do it. And, and dads and moms, here's how you do it. And workers, and he gets very practical. On how it looks in your everyday life. But here's your value. I will magnify Christ. I will lift him up. It's exactly what he writes in, in 1 Corinthians. Where he says, Where, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Did you ever notice the next verse? A lot of us have that one marked. But did you ever notice the beginning of the next verse? Give no offense. Right away. Okay, we're right back to that. People relationships. How we give no offense that they may be saved. That you're living in a way that doesn't drag the name of Christ down. So it's easy to say, okay, I do that, but let's do a test. Let's ask ourselves, and let's be honest, really honest, and let's say, okay, did you promote Christ? Did you honor him by the words you used this week and the way you said those words? Did you honor Jesus Christ the way you worked this week? The way that you played sports. And did you, was there a peaceableness? You were competitive, but were you doing it in a way that honored the Lord? How about, how about the way you dress? What you wear, don't wear, and how you wear it? Did you honor the Lord? The way you had family conversations and interactions, did it honor the Lord? Or was it one of those things that you would be embarrassed if somebody else from Christian, Christianity came in and observed. Where you go, how you treated others, the way you served other people, 
how you handled your frustrations, how you responded when things really irritated you, did it honor the Lord. The way you were handling your finances, did you honor the Lord? Did, did you honor the Lord when it comes to how you related to your relatives? Today, when you choose on the Lord's day, what you're going to do for the rest of the day, will it honor the Lord? Will it honor the Lord? It's easy to sit here and talk about it. It's easy to pretend we're doing all these things. But the reality is, a lot of believers have the door shut. They're very content with the the ante room. They're very content to be on a sofa sleeper, but they'll complain about how others are more blessed than they are. Others have greater answer to prayers. Others seem to be used by God so much more. They look at those big doors, but they don't open them. And if you open those doors by adopting the values that we are sharing with you this morning that are in this passage, you will enjoy all that Christ has paid for. Is it easy? No. But can it be done? Yes. But you may sit here and say, yeah, but you don't know my past. Without boring you, let me read somebody's testimony of someone who had to come to that point where they made a decision. Would it be Christ or would I stay in this closed little room of Christianity? One Sunday evening in a church, a young woman by the name of Patty Owan stood up to give a testimony. The congregation expected her to praise the Lord for the recent birth of she and her husband's four-month-old son and to hear an update on how well all things were going. But as she began to speak, the room became still and silent. They were not prepared for the personal story of repentance and grace this well-spoken Sunday school teacher shared with them that night. Hanging onto the podium before her, she she began four years ago. This very week, a young girl sat crying on the floor of her New Jersey apartment. She was distraught over the results of the lab report that she had just gotten from the doctor. Unmarried, alone, she just found out she was pregnant. The congregation was stunned. They could tell by her tear-choked voice that Patty was sharing with them her own story. She went on. I had considered myself to be a Christian by that time. I had heard of Christ and his salvation while in the drug scene. Some believers had witnessed to me. I believed, but I still struggled with giving my entire life to him and becoming a dedicated believer. I wanted to live for him, but I was unwilling to give up my old friends and my old habits. I was drifting between two worlds. I went to church regularly. I witnessed. I worked with the teen youth group on Sundays. But during the week, I still smoked dope. Went to bed with my boyfriend who lived in the apartment below mine. But now, being pregnant ripped through the hypocrisy of my double life. I'd been meaning to get right with God, but I kept slipping back. Now, I realized I could never live the nice, clean Christian life like all those church people I admired and wanted to be like. To me, the answer was clear. I would wipe the slate clean and get an abortion, and the problem would all go away. No one in the church would ever have to know. The clinic scheduled the abortion date, but I was terrified, uncertain, confused. My boyfriend was adamant, get the abortion. My sister was furious with me for being so stupid as to even get pregnant. 
Finally, in desperation, I wrote my parents. They were staunch Catholics, very opposed to abortion. I knew they would support me if I decided to keep the baby after all. My mother called after she got my letter. She said, If you don't get an abortion, I don't want to see you at all while you are pregnant. Your life will be ruined, and you aren't going to ruin ours as well. I was now very hurt, very angry. I had always been desperately dependent on other people, but I knew this was one decision I had to make on my own. So I was looking out my bedroom window one night when I thought clearly for the first time in weeks. I realized I either believe in this Christianity or I didn't. And if I believe in Christ, I couldn't have the abortion. God is real. And even if I can never experience a good life like so many other believers, well, that night I determined to follow him and his word no matter what it cost me. I would forgive others. I would live to glorify the Lord as best as I could. That decision was the point of no return for me. I put my faith in the God of the Bible, not just the God I had made up in my own head. I was still everything I never wanted to be, pregnant, alone, deserted by family and friends, and rejected by the man I loved. But for the first time, I was really, really right with God. And because for the first time I was really being obedient to Him, no matter what it would cost me, I was confident of God's blessing. When I went to the obstetrician and told him what I had determined to do and why, he told me he would not charge me at all for the prenatal care or the delivery. I confessed my double life to the church, and with their forgiveness and support, I began to have victory over my past. I moved to another apartment away from the old crowd. I began to go to Christian counseling. I felt God was leading me to give the baby up for adoption. And eventually I gave birth to a beautiful baby girl named Sarah. She was placed with a childless Christian couple so the baby would have a solid Christian home to grow up in. We all felt this was the hand of God in answering their prayers and mine. That is why I want to praise God this evening. I had thought in the depths of my despair my life was ruined. But I knew I had to at least be obedient in taking responsibility for my own sin. But today, by God's grace... And because of that very obedience, I have what I thought I could never have. I have a godly husband, a baby of our own. But what matters even more than anything else, I have what I so desperately was searching for for so very, very long. I am right with God. That's a story of grace. But it's also a story of growth. It's a story of a believer coming to a point where they said, no matter what, peace with others. No matter what, the Word of God is going to dictate what I do. No matter what, I will bring honor to the name of Jesus Christ and what I do by being obedient to Him. No matter what your background, no matter what you've done, adopt these values and watch God pour out blessings upon you.